0: Welcome to War of the Worlds. Please make sure you've subscribed and reviewed with five-star rating the podcast on wherever you're listening to it. If it's on Spotify, you can't review or rate it on there, but you can go onto Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts and review it there. It really helps let people know and find the podcast who want to listen to it. Hello! Welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of the War of the Worlds with me, Eddie Hurst. Welcome back everybody and welcome to chapter 14 in London. Where could it be set? That's yeah, it's in it's in London. It's set in London if this is the first episode that you're listening to welcome, thank you so much for joining me but I would recommend you going back and listening to chapter one because in case you didn't get from the title, this is the show where we take H.G. Wells' seminal novel The War of the Worlds, we mash it up we chop it, we fry it in a pan we throw in some comedy songs, some personal comedy friends, we do a few deep dives of research about all sorts of things this chapter is English exceptionalism and then we pour it out into a good old bowl of audio ear goo audio ear goo, that's chosen to call it. Anyway, uh, we're going to get into the chapter proper. I'm joined this week by Frank Foucault. He's a fantastic comedian, clown, and musician. He's got a new album out, which you can only get on a face mask called Mask, uh, which I'd recommend you checking out. I'll tell you a bit more about that at the end. Here we go. Chapter 14. In London. My younger brother was in London when the Martians fell at Woking. He was a medical student, working for an imminent examination. And he heard nothing of the arrival until Saturday morning. The morning papers on Saturday contained, in addition to lengthy special articles on the planet Mars, on life in the planets, and so forth, a brief and vaguely worded telegraph. All the more striking for its brevity. Good evening, this is The Wireless, and we have received a striking telegram containing quite a brief message. The message is... send. Dash. Nudes. Stop. The Martians, alarmed by the approach of a crowd, had killed a number of people with a quick-firing gun. So the story ran. The telegram concluded with the words,
1: Formidable as they seem to be, the Martians have not moved from the pit into which they have fallen and indeed seem incapable of doing so. Probably this is due to the relative strength of the Earth's gravitational energy.
0: On that last text, their leader writer expanded very comfortingly. The role of newspapers, telegrams, and generic quotations will be performed by Luke Smith.
1: I have um, I have no relationship with War of the Worlds whatsoever.
0: I don't know why you've asked me to do this. Of course, all the students in the Kramers biology class, to which my brother went that day, were intensely interested. <laughs>
2: It's me, the explaining lad. Vroom, vroom, I'm just in my convertible sports car. You know, I've gotten to a point in my life where I've got more expendable income. The little uh, sproglets have left the old flat. Uh, so I can really enjoy myself a little bit more uh, Yeah, I have left my wife But um, I'm not having a midlife crisis uh, I just I just really click with Suzanne I just really click with her You know, she has. Yes, there is an age difference about 20 to 30 years But I don't really see age as a number So uh, and I think really, if anything Aren't you the one uh, Being oppressing your societal views on me So don't then, then bring your hang-ups over here Anyway Crammer's biology class. So, a cramming school, like a crammer school, is a place where people would go to learn a specific thing very quickly. So, that's where the phrase cramming for an exam comes from, because you've got to learn lots of a specific thing all at once. So, a crammer school is where that came from. It's an actual place that you'd go for a specific thing. So, the brother has an examination, and and so he'd come here. All right, okay. Uh, Yes, Suzanne. Uh, Sorry, we've got to drive. I've got to take her to McAdoo's. I've not had a burger from there in about. Fifteen years, when I took the kids to their swimming lessons, Uh, it was always an enjoyable time, but they don't talk to me so much
0: anymore. But there were no signs of any unusual excitement in the streets. The afternoon papers puffed scraps of news under big headlines. They had nothing to tell beyond the movements of the troops about the Common, and the burning of the pine woods between Woking and Weybridge, until 8 then the St. James Gazette, in an extra special edition, announced the bare fact of the interruption of telegraphic communication. This was thought to be due to the falling of burning pine trees across the line. Nothing more of the fighting was known that night. The night of my drive to Leatherhead and back. Hey, we've got a new feature that I'm going to introduce called... Lines. It's when things are, things are the same as they are back then. So there's a mention of, uh, of scraps of news uh, un- under big headlines, and that's a little bit like nowadays, isn't it? You know, and you see breaking news now, and it's like there's the headline, and then there's nothing else underneath it, and often it's just a rumour, it's a bit of clickbait. That, that happened then, didn't it? So, you know, that's not a new thing. My brother felt no anxiety about us, as he knew from the description in the papers that the cylinder was a good two miles from my house. He made up his mind to run down that night to me, in order, as he says, to see the things before they were killed. He dispatched a telegram, which never reached me, about four o'clock, and spent the evening at a music hall. Sounds like he's having a great time. Good for him. In London, also, on Saturday night there was a thunderstorm, and my brother reached Waterloo in a cab. On the platform, which the midnight train usually starts, he learnt after some waiting, that an accident prevented trains from reaching Woking that night. The nature of the accident he could not ascertain. Indeed, the railway authorities did not clearly know at that time. Oh, bloody hell, there's a shocker. I mean, I may as well throw in another one of these. Because uh, tra- train lines are often often not very good at conveying information to passengers now, are they? The thankless job running a train line, I think, because if if the trains run normally, uh, it's it's like well, good, that's your job, and if if you have any problems, which is likely, because it's a big logistical thing to do, you you get it in the neck. Still, it's pl- bloody annoying when you've uh, paid so much for a ticket, is it? That they just muck a, muck around with it, you know. It's it's I'm just I'm just saying that you know some problems back then do translate to now. Jeez, get off my back. There was very little excitement in the station, as the officials, failing to realise that anything further than a breakdown between Byfleet and Woking station had occurred, were running the theatre trains which usually passed through Woking round by Virginia Water or Guildford. They were busy making the necessary arrangements to alter the route of the Southampton and Portsmouth Sunday League excursions. (laughs)
2: Can I get a double burger McHappyland, and a sugary sugary drink meal with the top up top up bozo juice please? What? Oh, do they come with a toy? Yeah, no. Throw a toy in there then. Yeah, don't worry, I've got a babe. Okay, guys, hey, sorry, just placing my order at the Macca's drive-thru. It's no big deal. Uh, So, Sunday League Excursions. Uh, What this was was uh, back before cars, there was still a football league going on. And what would happen in the 1800s is, especially towards the end of it, you'd get whole football teams travelling together on the trains, getting there. Big mountain movement. You've got to think all the fans are going as well as all the teams, the linesmen, if they've got to go from another area. It was quite a logistical undertaking. What, sorry, this is boring. Sorry, Suzanne's getting a bit bored by my explanation.
0: A nocturnal newspaper reporter, mistaking my brother for the traffic manager, to whom he bears a slight resemblance, waylaid and tried to interview him. I mean to be fair, have you seen his brother? You can't take him anywhere without him being mistaken for a traffic manager. Last time they tried to get a flight to Tenerife, he wound up in the bloody flight control box. Few people excepting the railway officials, connected the breakdown with the Martians. I have read, in another account of these events, that on Sunday morning...
1: All London was electrified by the news from
0: Woking. As a matter of fact, there was nothing to justify that very extravagant phrase. Plenty of Londoners did not hear of the Martians until the panic of Monday morning. Those who did took some time to realise all that the hastily worded telegrams in the Sunday papers conveyed. The majority of people in London do not read Sunday papers. Are you aware of Martians, like, as a, as a concept?
1: Um, am I aware of Martians as a concept? Um, uh, y- y- I'll, I'll, I'll have to go into my mind palace for a second. <laughs> um, uh martians are people from mars things from Mars. yeah that's it do you know have you heard of do you know what a newspaper is um i i have heard of newspapers yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: okay great do you like what do you think about
1: them? what do i think of newspapers i think they're all right i that's what i think of them i you know i'm just i'm just an, an opinionated guy i i guess um
0: I I I would like to apologise to any listeners who who sort of heard that and and were a little offended, but yeah, you know when you ask Frank on, you do get you do get the the loudest mouth in the biz. Yeah, so this is this is one of the chapters that H.G. Wells does where it's like, um, you know, like when you listen to the news or something, it goes, and what's the what do the papers say? It's
1: weird that they do that, isn't it? It's weird that they um, well, it's weird that a medium, a news outlet, medium will be like, allowed... now let's look at the other news medium that we've got it's like if, it's like the newspapers don't go oh what's bbc news saying
0: <laughs> you know like on bbc breakfast so- like they get musicians on and the musician will have to say something vaguely news-like. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's like that, but for newspapers. It's just great synergy, man. We're looking at Victorian newspapers, uh, and so I collected some of the craziest stories from Victorian times, uh, some of the top headlines of the day, um, and I've also made up a few that I've put in there. Hello. So uh, what we're going to do, Frank, is... I'm going to read out the headline for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I can give you a little bit more information if you want it. And I need you to tell me whether you think it's true, as in, yes, that is a real Victorian headline, or it's false, I've I've made it up. Okay. First one, the haunted cab. That's a headline? Yeah, yeah. I can give a little more. Okay. A little more info yes, if you want. True. So... uh all right, so the story of The Haunted Cab is it's an old carriage, so like a horse-drawn cab carriage, uh, haunted by a ghost. Is that, do you think that was a true Victorian headline, or have I made that one? I
1: think that's... Oh, jeez, Louise. I'm going to go true. True.
0: You're right, that is yes. true. That is true. Uh, it had my favourite line of all of these uh, in it, uh, which is the intro, was, if one speaks of haunted cabs, one is likely to be greeted With a cynical smile. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, as soon as you brought up that haunted cab, I did... I saw your cynical smile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't help myself. Okay, number two, uh, headline, Terrified to death by donkey. Mm. More info, please. All right, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a farmhand in Victorian times, uh, obviously, who got a heck of a fright from a donkey and then ran away and, and, and passed out and died of exhaustion. False. Oh, no way. It's true. What? It's true. That's true. It actually happened. A poor lady. I don't, I don't doubt that it happened, but I'm just surprised that it made the papers. That, it made the papers, baby. It made a thing called the Illustrated Police News, which was, uh, <laughs> which was like, um, like sort of the Daily Mail on crack because the, oh, yeah. the majority of people who bought it uh, bought it because it was illustrated so well. Because a lot of the readership couldn't actually read, so they just bought Run. it for the pictures. Number three, boy discovers dinosaur in cotton mill. Boy discovers dinosaur in cotton mill. Yeah, go on. Okay. Is there a an... bit more info? So it is yeah. uh, a boy who worked at a mill. Uh, he found a he found a plank like broken on the floor, and in the dirt underneath it, there was the like fossilized dinosaur remains. Oh, <sighs> Underneath the plank of the dirt, um, yeah, 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 so like they they dug out all of the obviously you know when you build factories, you have to dig the land up and that, and then underneath the underneath the little like the floorboards, which were broken, the lad fell in because why wouldn't he use fucking Victorian times? And he, he finds a bone. And he's okay. And it's a dinosaur bone.
1: I'm gonna go for true. False
0: baby! I made it oh up! My God. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, uh number four, man killed by coffin. I mean, I've got an
1: instinct, but I wanna I wanna um I wanna hear more.
0: Okay, so a, a pallbearer, bearer, uh he trips. In a divot in the grave, and the the coffin smashes him in. Oof. If that's true, what do you do in that scenario? What do
1: you just leave him there, like because he's already, yeah, he's he already is... like in the ground? You might as well just like bury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they wouldn't have done that, would they? They would have like they would have taken him out and then put him in his separate coffin, and then.
0: I imagine. Yeah, it's probably quite expensive to the plot of land that you have to pay for is quite expensive. So, but maybe get a staff discount. True.
1: True, you would expect so. At least ten percent. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go true. Actually,
0: absolutely right. True. True. Stormed it. Okay, number five. Dog given knighthood for saving Lord. Ooh, what a lovely story. It's a nice feel good, isn't it? I can't imagine
1: they would have given a dog a knighthood. In the vict Queen Victoria wouldn't have given a dog a knighthood, right?
0: She did. She did love animals, though. I don't know
1: anything about Queen Victoria.
0: (laughs) And that's how she likes it. What is there more? Have you got more info on that? It's the Lord was Lord Walsingham. um, Okay. And it was that. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how much. So the dog, it was his dog, basically. And he took him to the train station. And the dog kicked up such a fuss, he didn't go on the train, which then crashed and loads of people died on it. So. Oh bit tenuous. Oh. I'm gonna go true. I made it up, baby! Oh, what?! <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> there were so many details. You just reeled me in. <laughs> I'm sorry. I spent far too much time coming off... I reckon I probably did more writing than the actual journalists of these headlines did. <laughs> okay, so last one. Man killed by his own invention. Okay, what's the invention? How did it kill him? The story is that it's a guy who is like he he does the lamplighter. Do you know lamplighters? Yeah, they light lamps. You've uh, you've cracked that Da Vinci code. Really blagged that one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the lamplighter like they have to get up at antisocial hours. So he created he like designed for himself this invention that's like an alarm clock. Uh, but they didn't have alarm clocks then. So at a certain time his shelf comes down and hits the bed that wakes him up but one night he has guests over on a new year's eve he moves his bed out the way all the guests come in he has a party they leave and then because he's quite drunk he puts the bed back but doesn't really look where he's going the alarm clock like the stone rock ball thing smashes his head false surely false it's true what it's true <laughs> that was the most <laughs> it's the... it's the most bullshit one <laughs> it's more bullshit than the haunted cab yeah i don't know <laughs> there's so many there's... there's so many questions when i was trying to find like study like trying to research actual headlines the majority of them were all dead right and it was really i thought right this is gonna be fucking bleak if I... i'm gonna have to make some up because if we just do true and false with real headlines, they're all like man died of swallowing mouse. <laughs> it's a total horror show. <laughs> I think you did okay there. You got a few right. What, what, did, were you keeping score? Yes. I was keeping score. Shit. Shit. Uh, so you got two out of. You got two out of six.
1: That's. That's. I'm pretty sure that's garbage.
0: I'm pretty sure, like, it's I think two out of six is fine. I think you've done all right, mate. I wouldn't worry. No, I'll be. I'll be. I'll be awake tonight
1: thinking about thinking about it. Think, thinking about how you lured me in with that that dog story.
0: The habit of personal security, moreover, is so deeply fixed in the Londoner's mind, and startling intelligence so much a matter of course in the papers that they could read without any personal tremors.
1: About 7 o'clock last night, the Martians came out of the cylinder and, moving about under an armour of metallic shields, have completely wrecked Woking Station with the adjacent houses and massacred an entire battalion of the Cardigan regiments. No details are known. Maxims have been absolutely useless against their armour. The field guns have been disabled by them. Flying hussars have been galloping into Chertsey. The Martians appear to be moving slowly towards Chertsey or Windsor great anxiety prevails in west surrey and earthworks are being thrown up to check the advanced london wood
0: that was how the sunday sun put it and a clever and remarkably prompt handbook article in the referee compared the affair to a menagerie suddenly let loose in a village okay so we all know what the sunday sun is it's a boo not keen on that load of nonsense still still surviving but the referee uh, was a newspaper that was primarily based around sports. So I guess the point that HT Wells is making here is that if even a sports paper is reporting on this, it must be quite the shaker. Also, I mean big shout out to the imagery of a menagerie being let loose in a village. It's like like you're just in this English village and then all of a sudden there's a peacocks descend on you, and that's comparable to a Martian invasion. Brilliant. <coughs> oh my god! Quickly give them the planet! <coughs> <coughs> No one in London knew positively of the nature of the Armoured Martians, and there was still a fixed idea that these monsters must be sluggish. Crawling! Creeping painfully! Such expressions occurred in almost all the earlier reports. None of the telegrams could have been written by an eyewitness of their advance. The Sunday papers printed separate editions as further news came to hand, some even in default of it. But there was practically nothing more to tell people until late in the afternoon when the authorities gave the press agencies the news in their possession. It was stated that the people of Walton and Weybridge and all the district were pouring along roads Londonward, and that was all. My brother went to church at the Foundling Hospital in the morning. OK, so, um, I mean, this could be an explaining lad bit, but to be honest, I think he's got quite a bit on his plate, uh, this chapter uh, with Suzanne and that. I mean, that whole relationship makes me feel uncomfortable, quite frankly, so I, I didn't want to bother him. Too much, uh, but the Foundling Hospital—it's uh, it, it, not just uh, strictly a hospital. It's like a building for the for the welfare and care of founded or deserted children. So. They could be orphans or uh, children that were just left behind uh, or lost in some way. Um, th- they could be ill or it could just be for the general care of them. Uh, but I don't know about you, but whenever in this book I hear anything involving uh, the words deserted children or orphans, I just think that that, that hospital's going to be going to be in for it, innit? I'm, I'm worried about them. Still in ignorance of what had happened on the previous night. There he heard allusions made to the invasion. And now I ask you to join us in prayer as we say... Oh Lord, don't let these Martians that are absolutely here get us and boppers on our noses. Please protect us from these Martians invading us. Amen. 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 Hmm, I wonder what he's talking about. And a special prayer for peace. Coming out, he bought a referee. He became alarmed at the news in this, and went again to Waterloo Station to find out if communication were restored the omnibuses carriages cyclists and innumerable people walking in their best clothes seemed scarcely affected by the strange intelligence that the news vendors were disseminating people were interested or if alarmed alarmed only on account of the local residents well i mean absolutely no need for a Paralyse. i mean could you imagine nowadays if we heard about some form of threat or, uh, or, or illness, like a sort of a disease of invasion passing across uh, across the world and, and we didn't do anything about it until it was right on our doorstep. <laughs> I mean, definitely not something that would have happened now for the last year or something, is it? <laughs> At the station, he heard for the first time that the Windsor and Chertsey lines were now interrupted. The porters told him that several remarkable telegrams had been received in the morning from Byfleet and Chertsey stations, but that these had abruptly ceased. My brother could get very little precise detail out of them.
1: There's fighting going on about Weybridge.
0: Was the extent of their information. Now come on man, I'm going to need more information than that. Are you talking about the Martian invasion that's been in the news so much and is possibly, by context, the only fighting you could possibly mean? Or do you mean regular kangaroo boxing? Lord above. The train service was now very much disorganised. Quite a number of people who had been expecting friends from places on the Southwestern network were standing about the station. One grey-haired old gentleman came and abused the Southwestern company bitterly to my brother. It wants showing up! He said. Yes, that'll fix your problems. Complain bitterly at somebody who has no information. You've figured them out right and proper. One or two trains came in from Richmond, Putney and Kingston containing people who had gone out for a day's boating and found the locks closed and a feeling of panic in the air. Uh, yes, we did go out for a little boating trip with young Tarquin, but as soon as we got there, the air was just a bit too panicky, you know, and there's a bit, a bit too much of a panic in the air. That's, it was suddenly that sort of thing. Yes, you know what I mean. A sort of strange tiding, you know? A man in a blue and white blazer addressed my brother, full of strange tidings. There's hosts of people driving into Kingston in traps and carts and things... Boxes of valuables and all that, he said. They come from Moseley and Weybridge and Walton and they say there's been guns heard at Chertsey. Heavy firing. And that mounted soldiers have told them to get off at once because the Martians are coming. We heard guns firing at Hampton Court Station, but we thought it was thunder. What the dickens does it all mean? The Martians can't get out of their pit, can they? My brother could not tell him. Afterwards, he found that the vague feeling of alarm had spread to the clients of the Underground Railway and that the Sunday excursionists began to return from all over the western, Lung, Barnes, Wimbledon, Richmond Park, Kew, and so forth, at unnaturally early hours. But not a soul had anything more than vague hearsay to tell of. Everyone connected with the Terminus seemed ill-tempered. Much like the narrator, the brother seems to have a really good knack for telling if people are annoyed when the whole day has been ruined. <laughs> About five o'clock, the gathering crowd in the station was immensely excited by the opening of the line of communication, which is almost invariably closed, between the southeastern and the southwestern stations, and the passage of carriage trucks bearing huge guns and carriages crammed with soldiers. These were the guns that were brought up from Woolwich and Chatham to cover Kingston. There was an exchange of pleasantries... you get eaten! We're the Beast tamers! ..and so forth. <laughs> Hold on, let me just uh, get my sarcasm meter out, because, uh, yep, yep, exactly, uh, I believe that is off the charts, uh, sarcastic, uh, lovely little bit of sarcasm there by Wells. A little while after that, a squad of police came into the station and began to clear the public off the platforms, and my brother went out into the street again. The church bells were ringing for Evensong, and a squad of Salvation Army lassies were singing down Waterloo Road. On the bridge, a number of loafers were watching a curious brown scum that came drifting down the stream in patches. The sun was just setting, and the clock tower and the Houses of Parliament rose against one of the most peaceful skies it is possible to imagine. A sky of gold, barred with long transverse stripes of reddish-purple cloud. Metaphor alert. Metaphor alert. A calm, peaceful vision before the upcoming danger. Metaphor alert. There was talk of a floating body. One of the men there, a reservist he said he was, told my brother he had seen the heliograph flickering in the west. In Wellington Street, my brother met a couple of Sturdy roughs who had just been rushed out of Fleet Street with still wet newspapers and staring placards. Shout out for the name Sturdy Roughs. That was actually the name of my Shakespeare-inspired rap group. Dreadful catastrophe. They bawled one to the other down Wellington Street.
1: Fighting at Weybridge, full description. Repulse of the Martians, London in danger.
0: He had to give three pence for a copy of that paper. Would that be a thruppence? I think that's thruppence, it's three pence thruppence. I'm just going to look because... Brit- so three pence is a British coin, but is it... Ref- yes it is, he paid a thruppence. A threepenny bit. Why would you turn up I mean he wouldn't wells isn't to know that money would change despite the fact he can tell the future in so many other ways, but I don't understand why you'd why you'd throw up the chance to say thruppence. He threw a threepence for the copy of the papier. That's what I would have said, and that's probably why I don't have a seminal sci-fi novel then it was, and then only that he realised something of the full power and terror of these monsters. He learnt that they were not merely a handful of small, sluggish creatures, but they were mind-swaying, vast mechanical bodies, and that they could move swiftly and smite with such power that even the mightiest guns could not stand against them. They were described as Vast,
1: spider-like machines, nearly a hundred feet high, capable of the speed of an express train, and able to shoot out of a beam of intense heat.
0: Masked batteries, chiefly of field guns, had been planted in the country about Horsell Common, and especially between Woking District and London. Five of the machines had been seen moving towards the Thames, and one, by a happy chance, had been destroyed. In the other cases, the shells had missed, and the batteries had been at once annihilated by the heat rays. Heavy losses of soldiers were mentioned, but the tone of the dispatch was optimistic. I mean, yeah, we did lose a lot of men, and they do seem a pretty unstoppable force. But what I would like to say is that a lot of those guys that that died were pretty stinky, pretty stinky boys. So it's quite good we got rid of them. And, you know, the less equipment that we have, uh, the cheaper it is to run the military. So we're saving there, we're saving money there, that's good. And, um, you know, I just, I don't think it's a cause for concern. I think actually this is, in the long term, going to be all good (laughs) News. <laughs> the Martians had been repulsed. They were not invulnerable. They had retreated to their triangle of cylinders again, in the circle about Woking. Signallers with heliographs were pushing forward upon them from all sides. Guns were in rapid transit from Windsor, Portsmouth, Aldershot, Woolwich, and even from the north, among others. Long wire guns of 95 tonnes from Woolwich. Altogether, 116 were in position or being hastily placed, chiefly covering London.
1: I read, I've had a little read of the chapter, and it seems like the Martians' landing has has really only affected, like, places west of London. And I feel like the rest of the world (laughs) is really not that much of an issue, like,
0: anywhere else. Like, I don't understand. Hey, check it out! Other parts of England. Look, we're getting a mention of leaving the London commuter belt. Look, what we got? We got Southampton, Southampton, Southampton Portsmouth, 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 the North, the North. The North. and the North. actually, that's that's everything mentioned on the list so far. To be fair, the North that they mentioned could just be Northwest London. Hey, that's slightly more diverse than before, right? You know, it's kind of like having a having a potato waffle on a on a plate of chips. Like, I mean, sure, they're all potato, but it's a bit bit different in it what frank just brought up is something that i always find a bit weird about the war of the Worlds, and especially so far as we've been reading it is that whilst it's called the war of the world it's really more the war of a 75 mile radius of a single country and mars so really the title should be martians attack london and a bit of surrey which i will admit is nowhere near as exciting a title but why is this? Why did H.G. Wells say it's a War of the Worlds, but then just have it set in the capital of one single country? I mean, well, of course, there's the reason that, as this is meant to be subverting the colonial invasion story, and the largest colonial power of the time was London, it kind of makes sense that it would be set there. What, what? You mean to tell me? A London man? That I am being invaded? By foreigners, you say? But women to be the invaders! Ho ho, Herbert George! What a tricksy caprice, take all my money! But like, on a practical level, of everywhere in the world to initially invade, why would you choose a tiny little island that's difficult to travel outside of? right? Like, it's seen as a major achievement that the Martians have machines that can actually move quickly on the ground. There's no mention of them having boats or airplanes or any form of flight. Why not land in like Central Europe or America? I mean, heck, even land in one of the landlocked colonies that Britain rules. There's loads of places to take over and they're all really close to each other. Well, the reason for this, I think, is an example of the great British pastime called British, British exceptionalism, exceptionalism, or English, English Exceptionalism, exceptionalism Benny. Throughout this deep dive, I might be interchanging British with English. This is because whilst it's often referred to as British Exceptionalism, it really refers to the historic imperial sovereign rule of England across the rest of the Isles. Throughout history, Scotland, Wales and Ireland have been invaded and mucked around by the English. So this is isn't to say that Britain is England, because it isn't. This is just in terms of the idea of Exceptionalism that's a largely English feature and often referred to as British. But what the hell is Exceptionalism? Even supposed to be. according to richard t ashcroft and matt bever it's a whiggish view of the world that valorizes the evolution and exportation of the british political institutions values and ideas Or from charles reed it's a
2: unique mythology of belonging
0: well that clears that up guys uh should we get back to the book yeah all right i guess i'll explain a bit more exceptionalism in a general sense is the idea of something being exceptional Thank you, thank you, stop clapping, thank you. Meaning that there are qualities it possesses that make it better than others. You know, like, most films are great, but Howard the Duck is truly exceptional. Don't at me! So when you talk about countries, it's a view that there is something about a particular country that makes it an exception, you know? It makes it stand out from everywhere else, and that's kind of true of... uh, Every country, right? There's that old slogan that you can get on mugs and stuff that's like You're unique, just like everybody else And most countries have a belief that there's something about them that's great I mean, that's why people are happy to live in the place they do Or at least put up with it until they die and then Presumably have their coffins fired out of cannons into the stratosphere like I plan to do. But there's something about British exceptionalism that's just a that just makes it seem like a little bit more exceptional, you know. There's a saying about British nationality from famous racist and country stealer Cecil Rhodes that goes: Remember that you are an Englishman and have consequently won first prize in the lottery of life and whilst Rhodes himself might be a megazord of capitalism and colonialism and pretty much living a life completely different to how most of the citizens at the time did what he's communicating there is an idea that exists in the psyche of the British people in the same way that Bruce Willis's blues record exists in your father's vinyl collection like you don't notice it at first but once you've seen it that is pretty much all you can see on that shelf seriously he made like a blues persona called the Bruno it's it's Bonkers. And it seems like it's come back with a vengeance over the past few years, thanks to, or maybe it's just illustrated by, Britain. Brexit. And look, I'm not going to talk about Brexit a lot, as for the past few years the only thing that's been able to stop the total shit show of leaving the EU has been an actual global pandemic. But there's little else that can show Britain's view of itself, in terms of the rest of the world, than the idea that we think that our nation is such an economic powerhouse that not only will it survive, but excel by leaving a large collection of much bigger and more resource-rich countries and striking out on our own with trade deals that we can negotiate much better than them because of, and let me just check my notes, being Britain. So where does exceptionalism come from? Why is it so pervasive in England? Well, in what risks to be the chorus for this podcast, it's because of colonialism. colonialism. No, not the study of colons. The creating of colonies. What? Why would, why would you think it's about birds? Going to distant, unknown lands where no human, I mean, except for all the humans that were living there for centuries beforehand, has ever stepped. The time when we as sea pirates began to rob and cheat. Those who were there before us. Whereas in the first chapter we looked at how science, by using evolution and genetic theory, convinced Britain that it was appropriate to go and colonise places because you could make a horrendous claim that non-white people weren't the same species. The other argument on this coin is a moral reason to go over to these lands to save, educate and free these people. I mean, just imagine as I was saying that and putting quotation marks over them to show that I don't actually... Think that but the idea of going over with a more advanced society and technology isn't just an exclusively english idea i mean most european powers at that time were traveling across the world and slicing and dicing up according to what lands they grabbed and held first to quote the author of orientalism edward Said,
1: every single empire in its official discourse has said it is not like all the others that its circumstances are special it has a mission
0: to enlighten civilize order and democracy. Looking at that considerable cover of the globe, all starting from a little tiny island, makes a narrative that says that there must be something exceptional about Britain in order to have done what it did. And when you've got all that land, how do you keep the colonists and natives from revolting? Especially when you've already lost the United States of America with their very own exceptional narrative. Hey, listen, buddy. We're more exceptional than you, so you can yankee doodle do what? The best ideological way to do this is to make people feel involved in something larger than them. It's a classic means of rhetoric divide and conquer. You know, you change an argument to tradition and identity over the quality of the ruler you have. If you have the audacity to criticize the way this colony is being run, then you must not be a true patriot of Her Royal Highness, you treasonous scoundrel! If the nation of Britain is so majestic and mighty as to rise from its humble beginnings into such a powerhouse... Then who are you to question it? You're so lucky we came over here and freed your country. Now let us never talk of it again, and instead discuss what sort of flag you want on that pole. If this all sounds a bit familiar, it's because the ideas associated with this from colonialism never really went anywhere. I mean, one thing that I find mind-blowing is that Britain's last colonies existed right through to the 1960s. Like... While the Beatles were singing about just needing love, our nation still had these weird outposts that were built upon violence and bureaucracy. Just a couple of years after Wells wrote and published The War of the Worlds, the First World War came to town. And by when I say town, I mean, of course, the whole world. And when I mean the whole world, I mean mostly Western Europe and their associated colonies, which gave us such choice poems beforehand as The Soldier. Here's a little reading of it. If I should die... Think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign land that is forever England. What that means is if an English soldier has died in another part of the world, their corpse has turned that land into England. And I think this really summarises the belief that England could transform the very ground its subjects stepped on. And then of course World War II happens and our victory Britain's victory single handedly must be a result of the island's tenacity and not the fact that at the time of the Second World War we were the largest colonial power in the world still and also we had a lot of allies we were working with and even the countries that Germany occupied were actually doing a pretty good job of a resistance as well. But And that's not to trivialise individual sacrifice and lives that were lost not at all, it's just to say that actually there were lots of people involved in World War II were not just a single nation and even within that nation there were actually lots of different areas across the world that would be counted as Britain within the war force. To go back to the book there's something very exceptionalist in the idea that England being invaded and overrun would constitute a terrifying domination of earth from Martians and that's not to say that I think that Herbert George was a tub-thumping nationalist who'd go out in a St George's suit with a British bulldog you know I mean I doubt he'd have his ringtone as God Save the Queen and I guess you can make the argument that because he's writing in England to be read by English via London publications, it makes the most narrative sense for it to be set in the area that the readership is. I think Wells' actual view while reading the book is, oh, it must be awful being invaded. But like we saw before with the mention of the Tasmanian massacre, it's a pretty illuminating example of how highly England regarded itself at the time and how it's continued to have those ideas permeate through society. At least that's my two pence on the matter. Or would that be twopence? Let me have a... Look, yeah, tuppence. A tuppence! Never before in England had there been such a vast or rapid concentration of military material. Any further cylinders that fell, it was hoped, could be destroyed at once by high explosives, which were being rapidly manufactured and distributed. No doubt, ran the report, the situation was of the strangest and gravest description, but the public was exhorted to avoid and discourage panic. No doubt the Martians were strange and terrible in the extreme, but at the outside there could not be more than 20 of them against our millions. The authorities had reason to suppose, from the size of the cylinders, that at the outside there could not be more than five in each cylinder. Fifteen altogether. Okay, so let's just do a little maths check there. So we've got three, and that's times by five, so that does... Yeah, that gives us 15. Yep, 15's right, that's it. And one at least was disposed of. Perhaps more. Oh my god, are you kidding? Alright, okay, so 15, take away the That's four, 14. Fine, we're at 14. Okay. The public would be fairly warned of the approach of danger. And elaborate measures were being taken for the protection of the people in the threatened southwestern suburbs. And so, with reiterated assurances of the safety of London and the ability of the authorities to cope with the difficulty, this quasi-proclamation closed. Martians?! Here? Invading? Oh, but the authorities said they think they can cope with it and probably ma Oh, well, I'll just carry on. (laughs) No need for for any panic at all, then. I'll just carry on with my average old day. It's only a bunch of bloody aliens come from outer space. (laughs) Not even worth putting the shoes on. This was printed in enormous type on paper so fresh it was still wet. And there had been no time to add a word of comment. It was curious, my brother said. To see how ruthlessly the usual contents of the paper had been hacked and taken out to give this place. I mean, I normally only buy newspapers for the, uh, for the comic strips, so I was very disappointed to find Garfield wasn't there and it was all about Martians. Very curious. All down Wellington Street, people could be seen fluttering out the pink sheets and reading. And the Strand was suddenly noisy with the voices of an army of hawkers following these pioneers. Men came scrambling off buses to secure copies. Certainly this news excited people intensely. Whatever their previous apathy, the shutters of a map shop in the Strand were being taken down, my brother said, and a man in his Sunday raiment, lemon yellow gloves even, was visible inside the window hastily fastening maps of Surrey to the glass. Going along the Strand to Trafalgar Square, the paper in his hand, my brother saw some of the fugitives from West Surrey. There was a man with his wife and two boys and some articles of furniture in a cart such as Greengrocer's use. He was driving from the direction of Westminster Bridge, and close behind him came a hay wagon with five or six respectable-looking people in it, and some boxes and bundles. The faces of these people were haggard, and their entire appearance contrasted conspicuously with the Sabbath-best appearance of the people on the omnibuses. Imagery alarm! Imagery alarm! Imagery alarm! Contrast between the haggard faces of the new arrivals facing the Martian invasion with that of the carefree, formal life of the Londoners. Imagery alarm. People in fashionable clothing peeped out at them from cabs. They stopped at the square as if undecided which way to take, and finally turned eastward along the Strand. Some way behind these came a man in workday clothes, riding one of those old-fashioned tricycles with a small front wheel. He was dirty and white in the face. Like narrator, like brother, even even when somebody has seen the greatest horrors of their life, all he can talk about is how horrible his appearance is. My brother turned down towards Victoria and met a number of such people. He had a vague idea that he might see something of me. He noticed an unusual number of police regulating the traffic. Some of the refugees were exchanging news with the people on the omnibuses. One was professing to have seen the Martians. Boilers on stilts, I tell you. Striding along like men. Most of them were excited and animated by their strange experience. I could tell at this point that the refugees from war were upset. Beyond Victoria, the public houses were doing a lively trade with these arrivals. At all the street corners, groups of people were reading papers, talking excitedly, or staring at these unusual Sunday visitors. They seemed to increase as night drew on, Until at last the roads, my brother said, were like Epsom High Street on a derby day. My brother addressed several of these fugitives and got unsatisfactory answers from most. Please sir, can you help? I've got no home anymore, it was blown up. Now see here, I asked you in good faith for the name of the head Martian, and all I hear is whining. Well, I say good day to you sir. Ha! Most unsatisfactory. None of them could tell him any news of Woking except one man who assured him that Woking had been entirely destroyed on the previous night. I come from Bifleet, he said. A man on a bicycle came through the
1: place in the early morning and ran from door to door warning us to come away.
0: Riding a bike uh, definitely wasn't the narrator then.
1: Then came soldiers. We went out to look and there were clouds of smoke to the south. Nothing but smoke and not a soul coming that way. Then we heard the guns at Chertsey and folks coming from Weybridge. So I've locked up my house
0: and come on. At that time, there was a strong feeling in the streets that the authorities were to blame for their incapacity to dispose of the invaders without all this inconvenience. About eight o'clock, a noise of heavy firing was distinctly audible all over the south of London. My brother could not hear it for the traffic in the main thoroughfares, but by striking through the quiet back streets to the river, he was able to distinguish it quite plainly. He walked from Westminster to his apartment near Regent's Park, about two. He was now very anxious on my account, and disturbed at the evident magnitude of the trouble. His mind was inclined to run, even as mine had run on Saturday. On military details, he thought of all those silent, expectant guns. Of the suddenly nomadic countryside, he tried to imagine boilers on stilts a hundred feet high. <laughs> home too, you know. I think this is HG Wells' moment to just take stock and think of what a boiler would look like if it was higher up than you'd previously expected it, with some stilts or something. You got it? It's not that difficult. There were one or two cartloads of refugees passing along Oxford Street, and several in the Marlebone Road, But so slowly was the news spreading that Regent Street and Portland Place were full of their usual Sunday night promenaders. Albeit they talked in groups, and along the edge of Regent's Park there were as many silent couples walking out together under the scattered gas lamps as ever there had been. The night was warm and still, and a little oppressive. The sound of guns continued intermittently, and after midnight there seemed to be sheet lightning in the south. Uh, remember that? Lightning? You know what that means? It means uh, probably probably Martians, innit? It's not, you've had lightning popping up a lot uh, whenever Martians are knocking around, so, uh, you know, just brace yourself, because I think that's got something to do with them. Uh, there's no joke here, so how about this one? I went to the gym the other day and I saw two real dudesons working out, and I went, uh, hey, beefcakes, you want to see a real man? And then I showed them how to balance work and family life commitments. There you go. He read and reread the paper, fearing the worst had happened to me. He was restless, and after supper prowled out again aimlessly. He returned and tried in vain to divert his attention to his examination notes. He went to bed a little after midnight, and was awakened from lurid dreams in the small hours of Monday by the sound of door knockers, feet running in the street, distant drumming and a clamour of bells. Red reflections danced on the ceiling. For a moment he lay astonished, wondering whether day had come or the world gone mad. Then he jumped out of bed and ran to the window. His room was an attic, and as he thrust his head out, up and down the street there were a dozen echoes to the noise of his window sash. And heads in every kind of night disarray appeared. He means pajamas, but like back in the day you'd wear a hat in your pajamas, so imagine those little nightcap you know, like the little Ebenezer Scrooge nightcap that he wear with the Imagine that, but like a different like a whole variety of those. Got him? Okay. Inquiries were being shouted. They're coming! Boulder policeman, hammering at the doors. The Martians are coming! The Martians are coming! And hurried to the next door. Uh, American listeners uh, will know this way better than the British listeners, but as I was reading this, all I could think of was uh, the legend of Paul Revere, who's like this guy who goes on a horse and shouts, The British are coming! as he runs from town to town, and it's like a famous story of how he alerted the Americans to the British Invasion, uh, but in my head it's just a Cockney policeman going The Martians are coming! The Martians are coming! And that amused me, so I thought I'd share it with you and I hope it amuses you in any way, shape or form. Uh, and if not, let's just go back to the book and forget we said this. The sound of drumming and trumpeting came from the Albany Street barracks, and every church with an earshot was hard at work killing sleep with a vehement, disorderly toxin.
2: Wake up! Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up.
0: Wake up! Wake, wake, up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake get up! Wake 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 up! a noise of doors opening and window after window in the house's opposite flashed from darkness into yellow illumination. Up the street came galloping a closed carriage, bursting abruptly into noise at the corner, (laughs) rising to a clattering climax at the window and dying away slowly in the distance. Close on the rear of this came a couple of cabs, the forerunners of a long procession of flying vehicles, going for the most part to Chalk Farm Station, where the non-Western special trains were loading up, instead of coming down the gradient into Houston. For a long time, my brother stared out of the window in blank astonishment, watching the policemen hammering at door after door and delivering their incomprehensible message. Then the door behind him opened, and the man who lodged across the landing came in, dressed only in a shirt, trousers and slippers, his braces loose about his waist, his hair disordered by his pillow. Looking at the Wells patented chart of insanity to dress code, this guy is full on maniac. What the devil is this? He asked. A fire? What a
1: devil of a row! They
0: both craned their heads out of the window, straining to hear what the policemen were shouting. People were coming out of the side streets and standing in groups at the corners talking. What the devil is this all about? said my brother's fellow lodger. I mean I know I joked about him being 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 a lunatic because he he looked a little unkempt because he'd just woken up but also he has mentioned the devil three times and in every single sentence he's uttered so far that is that's that's not that's not helping dissuade the argument is it My brother answered him vaguely and began to dress running with each garment to the window in order to miss nothing of the growing excitement and presently men selling unnaturally early newspapers came bawling into the street London in danger
1: of suffocation, the Kingston and Richmond defences forced, fearful massacres in the Thames Valley.
0: And all about him, in the rooms below, in the houses on each side and across the road, and behind in the park terraces and in the hundred other streets of that part of Marlebone, and in the Westbourne Park District in St Pancras, and westward and northward in Kilburn, St John's Wood and Hampstead, and eastward in Shoreditch and Highbury and Haggerston and Hoxton, and, indeed, "'Through all the vastness of London from Ealing to Eastham, "'people were rubbing their eyes "'and opening windows to stare out and ask aimless questions, "'dressing hastily as the first breach of the coming storm of the fear "'blew through the streets. "'It was the dawn of a great panic. "'London, which had gone to bed on Sunday night oblivious and inert, "'was awakened in the small hours of Monday morning "'to a vivid sense of danger. "'Unable from his window to learn what was happening,' My brother went down and out into the street, just as the sky between the parapets of the house grew pink with the early dawn. The flying people on foot and in vehicles grew more numerous every moment. Black smoke! He heard people crying. And again. Black smoke! The contagion of such a unanimous fear was inevitable. As my brother hesitated on the doorstep, he saw another news vendor approaching and got a paper forthwith. The man was running away with the rest, and selling his papers for a shilling each as he ran. A grotesque mingling of profit and panic. Oh, I ask you, is there any better type of mingling? I don't think so. And from this paper, my brother read that catastrophic dispatch of the Commander-in-Chief. The
1: Martians are able to discharge enormous clouds of a black and poisonous vapour by means of rockets. They have smothered our batteries, destroyed Richmond... Kingston, and Wimbledon, and are advancing slowly towards London, destroying everything on the way. It is impossible to stop them. There is no safety from the black smoke but an instant flight.
0: That was all, but it was enough. The whole population of the great six million city was stirring, slipping, running. Presently it will be pouring en masse northward. Oh, I see how it is. The moment there's any trouble in the capital, they all come running up north towards... Well, you know what? I'm going to play another one of these. Paralyze. I mean, I, I would like to say that, actually, I quite like London as a city. I think it's pretty great. But, um, you know, you know it's still, it's an unfair balance uh, towards London from the rest of the country. Um, And also, I think it's kind of funny, yeah, focusing on that sort of northern persona with a chip on the shoulder, so i uh, i'm probably gonna i'm probably gonna crack on with that if you if you don't mind and if you do well i'm gonna crack on with it anyway and the the way that the feedback works on this um i can't it's only after I've done it that I can hear you getting in touch and saying if you like it or don't what are you gonna do what are you gonna do? Let's go! the voices cried. The bells of neighbouring churches made a jangling tumult. A cart carelessly driven smashed amid shrieks and curses against the water trough up the street. Sickly yellow lights went to and fro in the houses and some of the passing cabs flaunted unextinguished lamps. And overhead the dawn was growing brighter, clear and steady and calm. He heard footsteps running to and fro in the rooms and up and down the stairs behind him. His landlady came to the door. Loosely wrapped in dressing gown and shawl, her husband followed, ejaculating. No, no, come on. It doesn't... it doesn't mean... it doesn't mean... That. It, it doesn't... come on, behave. Be, behave, please. As my brother began to realise the import of these things. It was at this point I began to think people might be slightly upset. He turned hastily to his own room, put all of his available money, some ten pounds altogether, into his pocket, and went out again into the streets. I wanna read
2: a book. Change the way I look and think.
1: Interesting characters. Lose
2: myself without.
0: what an amazing song it's like bonniver's gone to a library uh One of the things that I find really exciting about this show is that now I'm starting to get a lot of my musical comedy friends on, and it's such a joy and a treat to hear how they're taking on uh, the War of the Worlds and and books and, you know, anything, any idea that takes a fancy from reading it. That was by Frank Foucault. You can follow him on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, at Frank Foucault, and he's got a new album out at the moment that you can order called Mask. Uh, It's limited edition because it's all printed on a QR code on a mask. You can't hear it on anywhere that you can stream music and you can't buy it in any form other than on a mask. So please do do check that out. Uh, go, go on to his places. You can follow us, me. You can follow me at Eddie Hurst on Twitter, Instagram. I'm on Facebook, you're forward slash and then Eddie Hurst. Please do subscribe, rate, review the podcast, tell people what you're enjoying on social media with it. And also, I'd love for you to share the cover of your War of the Worlds books, if you have them. If you don't, it makes sense why you're listening to this. I will see you in another short while for Chapter 15, What Had Happened in Surrey. So I'll see you there. Thanks again, guys. See you soon. Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by Eddie Hurst and H.G. Wells. Our theme song is The Fall of Saigon by Ichabod Wolf. and special thanks this week to the guest, Frank Foucault. Please like, share, and review the podcast anywhere that you get your podcast, and be sure to follow us at Eddie Hurst on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.